Well, I hope that you are ready to dive into God's Word today as we finish up a job that we've been working on, and that's been working through, verse by verse, the book of 1 Timothy, and we're going to be landing the plane in chapter 6 today. And if you're just, you know, uh, catching up with us here, you're just checking this out today uh, for the first time, uh, don't worry, you can always go back online and catch up. But also, even today, you're going to see, we're going to see that some of the main key themes he brings up today, because what we'll notice is that he's going to be having this final chapter, this final touch, kind of tying up some of his mental loose ends uh, from what we've experienced in this whole book. Uh, my father-in-law's name is Steve. Here's a picture of Steve, and uh, he's, he's a great dad, and he's a great papa, if you can see there. And my father-in-law is super talented in many, many ways. Uh, he can fix literally anything. Okay, I mean, this guy, he's mechanical. Uh, um, uh, he, he's literally restoring a 1969 Mustang. Uh, he is, can do electric, plumbing. He's uh, not just a carpenter, but he's a finished carpenter. I mean, he is so detailed and precise. It's just unbelievable. And so then his lovely daughter, Jen, uh, decided to marry someone that's not so mechanical or handy. Uh, he's a little more, you know, artistic or creative or, you know, visionary kind of mind, if you will. Uh, you're welcome, Dad. I know you love me. And so let's just say, you know, marrying Jen and having uh, a father-in-law who can do anything, it can be a little intimidating sometimes. So I've learned a lot from Steve. I mean, just just so many jobs and that he's helped me on through the years. And so some of those skills I've been able to pick up, some of them I still haven't been able to pick up. But it's just been amazing. But one of the things about Steve is that, again, he's not just any kind of carpenter. He's a detailed, meticulous carpenter. I mean, details matter to him. So like when you're doing a paint job, the paint job is not finished until you do that line of beaded caulk all around the side. I mean, I mean, he's just, I mean, he's showing me when I feel like the job's done and we're ready to pack up, he's like, mm, mm, mm. I mean, he just makes sure it's like the finishing touches matter. They're super important. Uh, this past uh, summer, uh, me and Steve, surprised Jen. It was her 40th and she was down in Ohio visiting some friends. So we decided that we were going to rip up the old carpets and put in wood that she's been wanting for the, for the last 10 years. And so we like rocked this within like a day and a half. And so we could surprise her when she came home and everything would be done. And, and I just, when I thought everything was done again, he's like, yeah, but we got to get the shoe molding. And there he is with the cock, just getting everything done. Just so precise. I'm just, it's just, that's what he has shown. That's what he's modeled. Um, when I was in my late teens, early 20s, I was running a landscaping company. And during my landscaping years, we would do new installs or we would do restoration jobs a lot. And on those restoration jobs for houses that were overgrown, or we would be fixing up brick paver patios that had just, just become a debacle. And so one of the things that you know, when it comes to brick paver patios, maybe you have a brick paver patio, you know, laying the foundation is super key, right? You got to have a good base. You got to have a good foundation, but then there's some finishing touches that you have to do that are super important. And some of those finishing touches is that you have to make sure that you put in enough joint sand within uh, the joints of the brick. And then you have to make sure you have a sufficient 
edge that is bracing the edge of the brick pavers. If those two things aren't good, then the bricks are going to start to separate and break apart. But the other key thing that's really important when it comes to brick pavers is the difference between people that decide to seal their bricks and not seal. And when you don't seal the bricks, here's the difference between what happens to the bricks that are unsealed and are sealed. Sealing the bricks is the final thing that is so important to do with your brick pavers. And we would see people miss this all the time. Sealing the bricks is a protectant that helps prevent mold, grime, dirt from weeds growing through. It also protects from UV rays that would discolor the bricks. And so, so many times people would miss that final touch of sealing the bricks. And so in a very similar way, what we're going to see here is Paul putting the finishing touches on his letter, and it's almost like a sealant that is covering areas to make sure that we're protected as a church with our structure and with the structure of our lives. It's this protectant sealant to, to kind of ask ourselves some questions of where might we, we be vulnerable to make sure that the ways of the world are, are, are in the, in the dirt, the grime, you know, or the unprotected UV rays of the world would start to break us down. One of the key themes that we've seen all throughout this series is this theme right here, that God's order will seem to be out of order in the world's highs. This is just a truth that we've seen laced all throughout this text, that, that, that the world will think that God's ways are extreme or fanatical or whatever it is. And so here he is warning us and reminding us that we need to have the gospel message of Jesus cover us like a seal to protect us where we might be vulnerable. And we're going to see this protect sealant uh, that, that we need to be aware of in, in four different ways. We're going to see how it can protect our culture, how it can protect our communication, how it can protect our contentment, and how it can protect our courage. And so whether you're a Jesus follower or not today, I just want to encourage you that you can still take something from this because these key tools, these finishing touches that Paul gives us are incredible and can be used as tools in your own life. And so I hope that you will lean in as well. But before we dive in, I just want to pray for you and pray for me. So Father, I just ask that you would help us grab onto these finishing touches and help it to just move us uh, wherever we're at in our lives. Help us just to hit exactly where we might need it to hit as we go through all this content. God, just control my pace and mind as I communicate. We pray this in the power of your son's name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. So, hey, open up a copy of the scriptures to the last chapter of the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 6. Please remember this important truth that Paul is writing this to his mentee, Timothy, to encourage him, to instruct him, to build him up, which he was helped leading this young church of Ephesus. And again, this isn't just some random letter. This is the real, inerrant, inspired word of God that we're about to jump into. So 1 Timothy, chapter 6, starting in verse 1, it says this. Let all who are under a yoke as bond servants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. And it continues. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Now, one of the things that we have to understand is that slavery back in this time period was rampant. It was everywhere. It's estimated that half of the Roman Empire was under slavery. That would be almost 60 million people in slavery. That's a lot of people. 
And a lot of times uh, their slavery then was for two reasons. It was for political reasons or economical reasons. It was political in the sense where, where people were slaves because they were captured in terms of prisoner of war. Uh, because of the political tensions that would go on in that time, people would get captured and then would be prisoners of war. They were either going to be a prisoner of war or they would be put to death. And so then they were become slaves. The other reason is for economic reasons, where people would just uh, start to acquire a debt that they could not pay off. And so they were put into slavery to pay off their debt. Now, when we think about slavery in America, that our slavery would be different from what they were experiencing then, where American slavery, when our country was founded and, and how slavery uh, came to be, was more of a very uh, distinct uh, race as Africans were brought over, not uh, by their will, but were kidnapped. And all the horrific stories that we know about our American slavery are just so awful and devastating. I mean, slavery, period. No, no matter what type it is, is, is horrific, it's devastating, and it's just not good. Especially when we think about our modern slavery that still happens today, even with sex trafficking. I mean, slavery is just flat out awful. So because of that, uh, when you read something like this or a portion of scripture like this, it can start making you question a little bit, like, wait a second. It can make you scratch your head a little bit and be like, wait a second, like, why is this in here? Like, he bonds servants, which is in Greek, slaves, respect and honor your master, be respectful. I mean, it can make you scratch your head a little bit, like, why would he say that? Or especially if you have distant relatives that were slaves, it can make you not want to even read the letters of Paul, which is understandable. Or, or for those that, that would take text like this that you've seen manipulate and distort to try to excuse slavery. So it oftentimes brings up this question of why didn't Paul, if he had the chance in that moment, why didn't God, through Paul, write to condemn slavery in that moment? Why, why didn't he condemn it there? Why didn't he forbid it? Why didn't he write about that? And the answer to that question is we don't know. Like, I, I wish we had a clear answer for that, but we really don't know. These are sometimes there's questions of what we wish things were a little more clear, but for this situation, it's just not so clear. But what we do know is this, is that even though he did not condemn slavery, he did not command slavery. Even though he didn't condemn it, he did not command it. And as you look at the different arguments or you look at different ways that scholars have talked about this, one of the key things that has helped me settle in with these types of verses to kind of help understand this and process this is to understand that Paul's primary purpose was not to go out and abolish slavery. His primary calling and purpose going from a murderer to a minister was to be a preacher and a church planter of the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. His calling, God used Paul to write the majority of the New Testament. That was part of his specific calling of what God raised him up to do, not to abolish slavery. However, the power of the gospel 
has an unbelievable power to shift culture and crazy ways. The power of the gospel of Jesus and what it means undermines slavery when it, does, when it doesn't even realize that it's undermining it. Or another way, the gospel of Jesus then was destroying slavery without necessarily declaring war on slavery. Paul did not go around preaching to abolish slavery or that it was a sinful institution, maybe because then the movement of Jesus would turn into a militant group that would be trying to undermine the social order and would lose the focus of why Jesus came. But instead, Jesus would help destroy, the message of Jesus destroy slavery from the inside out. And Jesus, you know, he modeled this. He didn't come to revolt. He didn't come to start a war. He came in peace. Another way of thinking about this is that the gospel power has and will continue to revolt against slavery, not by resistance, but by reverence. Not by violence, but instead with gentleness. You got to think too, when Paul was writing, we got to think that he was assuming or maybe picturing that slaves were going to be a part of the church. That a slave and a master would be sitting side by side in the congregational setting. Even in some circumstances, potentially, that a slave was actually an elder or a pastor over their master. But then they would leave the congregational setting back into their own world. And in this text, potentially he's reminding them, hey, don't flex your newfound freedom in Christ for negative, but you flex that freedom in a positive way. Because come on, true Christianity, if you're truly a Jesus follower, would undermine the horrors of slavery. I love... Um, when you go back in history and you look at a man named Joshua Wedgwood who created a medallion back in 1787 that would pose this question. And this is a question that would shake up things of slavery. And this became so famous and just, just rapidly just was spread all over the place with the question of, am I not a man and a brother? Am I not a man or a brother? And then later, am I not a woman and a sister? The concept of brotherhood and sisterhood, if you're a true Jesus follower and the message of the gospel hits you, then that question literally shakes up and turns slavery right upside on its head. I love how Martin Luther King said it like this, darkness cannot drive out darkness, only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. The gospel is like a sealant that comes over and can protect our culture from evil like slavery. It has the power to eradicate slavery from the inside out and other evils, which then also begs the question for us in, in other cultures, when we think about the culture of our home or when we think about the culture of our workplace, this can tie into that as well. I mean, thinking about our workplace, if you're an owner today of a business, what type of culture are you creating? Is it, is it, is it a culture that represents the gospel news of Jesus? 
Or if you're an employer, are you championing that culture or trying to build up that culture? Are you respectful to your employer? It's so important, like maybe even this past week, how have you been a champion? How have you been respectful as an employee or as an owner? How have you been, been honoring your employees? As in a home, children, how have you been honoring your parents? And parents, how have you been treating your children? The power of the gospel has the power to protect and invade culture in amazing, positive ways. Let's continue. It goes on in verse three. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. Here Paul is reminding like he warned multiple times in this book about the false teachers that are out there. And how awful is it is, is that when people are striving to get truth and then are robbed by false teachers to take them down paths that they're not supposed to go down. Shame on false teachers. And so he warns about that again, but then he goes on to talk about what false teachers will actually produce so that we can be on the lookout for these types of things. Here's what false teachers produce. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce what? Envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. This is what a false teacher is constantly producing into the world. However, I'm not calling you a false teacher out there, okay? But let's take a moment and mirror these things on our own lives. Like when you think about this past week, what type of words are you filling into the world, filling out into the world? Like, what are you pouring out into the world when it comes to your communication, when it comes to your words? Were your words this week filled with envy or with admiration? Were your words filled with dissension or with harmony? Were your words filled with slander or was it filled with praise? Was it filled with suspicion or was it filled with trust? Were your words filled with quarrels or was it filled with fighting for unity? And I think, come on, some of you know today that you just need to give your words a rest because you are constantly, literally just, just spewing out verbal chaos into the world into your city, into your neighborhood, into your home. It's just constant. And maybe you've even tried to stop it, but whenever you try to stop it, it's just like, bleh, it just keeps coming out. I mean, this past week, I um, was talking to a friend about a mutual friend that we have who's going through some issues and we're trying to kind of figure out how to help him and get to the bottom of it. And we, we should just automatically trust what our friend's saying, but you know, then I start thinking more suspiciously of, well, what about this? Or what about this? Or what about that? Which then kind of can turn into almost gossip, but then that's not good, right? I mean, I'm filling my mind with suspicion. Then I'm filling my other friend's mind about sus sus suspicion. Instead of us just focusing together on what we know to be true and then surround our brother in that moment. And so in that moment, I just need, I had to snap out of it. But how did I snap out of it? How did I correct myself in the moment? The reason I was able to correct myself in the moment is because the gospel protects our communication. 
It's like that final sealant that protects us when our words just want to get the best of us. And so it's so important for us to, to realize the power and the danger of our words. Hear from Paul again in Ephesians um, uh, chapter 4, 29. He says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that may give grace to those who hear. Or consider the words of Jesus in Matthew when he says this, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every, I should have highlighted that, every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified and by your words you will be condemned. I mean, that should Put us, stop us in our tracks to know that our salvation is not necessarily judged by our words, but even in the end, every stinking thing that you've said is going to echo into eternity and at one point you're going to be judged for the crap that comes out of your mouth and the crap that comes out of your mouth about others. That kind of kicked my butt this week. And I hope that that kicks your butt too. Where might you need to think back this week and confess where you let your lips get the best of you? Or where might you need to step into this coming week and put an extra covering of the gospel sealant over your life when you know you're going to be around that person or around that environment or job or wherever? We must allow the gospel to cover us like a sealant when it comes to our communication. Let's keep going. Verse six. But godliness with contentment is great gain for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. It continues. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge, like literally like a sinking ship, the Greek there, like sinking into the, into this depths of the sea, people into ruin and destruction. And then it says this, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. For the love of money, for the love of money. Now, sometimes we can get this wrong. I used to get this wrong all the time. I always would say, you know, the root of all evil, the root of all evil. I would say this all the time. Sometimes I would say it like this. Money is the root of all evil. Money is the root of all evil. And the difference that we see right here, right, is it doesn't say the money is the root of, it doesn't say that for the love of money is the root of all evil. It says that the money is a root of all evil. And here's a little Greek lesson. So the New Testament's written in Greek. And so a definite article would be the, and an indefinite article would be a. But in Greek, there's so many definite articles that they never came up with indefinite articles. And so technically, word for word in the Greek would be, for the love of money is root of all kinds of evil. Reminding us, again, that it's not that money is evil. It's the evil that's in us is that's evil. How we distort money and pursue money and try to make money the thing that will make us content and fill 
us up. That's where the problem is here. Being rich or poor does not equate to our godliness or to our holiness. It's a tragedy when money begins to rob us of our contentment, that we can have so much and yet have so much pain. What is contentment? Contentment is an inner sufficiency that keeps us at peace in spite of our circumstances. Let me say that again. Contentment is the inner sufficiency that keeps us at peace in spite of our circumstances. I love how Henry David says it like this. He says, a man is wealthy in proportion to the number of things he can afford to do without. Let that sink in. Paul is reminding us. It's a great reminder for us. He's reminding Timothy, he's reminding us that true contentment will never be found in your wealth, but only through godliness. True contentment, money can't buy. And the gospel works as a sealant to protect our contentment. The gospel is like a sealant that protects our contentment. Where do you find your contentment? Do you have contentment today? Like seriously, like ask yourself that. Do you have contentment today? Could you possibly be getting sucked into the never-ending chase that money will bring you contentment? Don't let money be your master. Let Jesus be your master. And when you let Jesus be your master and affect and invade your life, then you will be given his joy and peace that surpasses all understanding like a contentment like you've never experienced in your life. Let's continue. Verse 11. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. These things, just run, run from these things. And then he says this, pursue, pursue righteousness. Pursue godliness, pursue faith, pursue love, pursue steadfastness, pursue gentleness. Then he says, fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I like how it says here, fight the good fight of the faith. And this word fight right here in the original language is this idea of to agonize, to strive, to fight to the end, to fight to completion, to finish well. And then he says this, I charge you, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate, so going back in time, taking Timothy back in time to when Jesus was on trial, before he was going to be brutally crucified, he made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained, blameless, and free from reproach until the appearing glorious manifestation of our Lord Jesus Christ. It says this, which he will display at the proper time. He's coming back soon. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen, amen. Paul, like, right? He's literally outpouring his heart. He's not only saying, The gospel protects the culture, protects communication, protects our contentment. He's saying that it's protecting our courage. 
He's stirring up the courage of young Timothy. And I hope he might be stirring up the courage in you. He's saying that the gospel has a sealant power, a courage, reminding us of how great Jesus is and how his greatness will just inspire even more greatness. I mean, can we just, let's just read this again about what it says. It says, I mean, what does it say? It says right here, it says that, 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 that he is the blessed one. I mean, he's the blessed one and he's coming back soon. He's sovereign. I mean, Jesus is in control of it all. He's got the whole world in the palm of his hands. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. There is no other king. There is no Lord that could ever compare to the great king of Jesus. His immortality, death, he's deathless. Like he can never decay. He will always be and always is and always will be. I mean, he's the unapproachable light, meaning his light is so powerful and so great. It's just, you can't even contain the light of Jesus and he's eternal. I mean, it's unbelievable. And he says, can I get an amen? Can I get an amen? And I mean, get to be in agreement that, wow, we have Jesus. The victory has already been won. And so he's reminding Timothy, don't fear. Don't have timidity because you have the power of the gospel of the living Jesus living inside of you when you receive the message of the gospel, so powerful. And so I gotta ask you a question. Where might you need a dose of courage in your life? Where might you be a little timid? Where, where might you, you be retreating because of the enemy and because of the world instead of standing up strong and knowing that you have the power of the living God living inside of you, Jesus follower? The gospel power is a sealant that gives us courage like no other. So be strong and be courageous. Then you'd think you'd be done, right? He says, amen. But then he like gives a little PS, okay? He gives a little PS just in case you didn't hear me the first time. Uh, I, I just want to double check. We're going to kind of do the final checklist here. Here's his PS that he gives. He says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, it continues. Thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. And then he says this, Oh, Timothy, oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. He says, grace be with you. He says, Timothy, oh, Timothy, don't get distracted and guard the deposit entrusted to you. And in the same way, we can interpret this for us as God telling us, oh, Travis, Oh, Miles City family. Oh, Trails family. Guard your heart. Guard the deposit 
that has been trusted to you, the gospel message that you've received. And the moment that you've received it, now you are guardian of it to not only receive it, but to share it, to not only protect it, but then to proclaim it, to proclaim it. Lastly, maybe just maybe, and if you didn't hear anything, come right here, last thought, okay? Maybe just maybe he had that last little PS for you to remind you, to get your attention that there are false teachings of the world that is trying to take you out for good, that is trying to lure you away from a God who loves you so much. And because God loves us so much, he gave us the ability to choose him or not to choose him. Therefore, sin is here in the world. You've messed up, I've messed up, we're all flawed. And that sin has severed us from our God. It's literally like a crack that has just kept spreading further and further away, like the brick paper spreading out. God saw the problem and he said, you know what, I'm gonna restore it. I'm gonna fix it. And the only way to fix it is to send the image of myself down into the son of Jesus Christ. And he's going to show the example and he's going to pay the penalty and be a sacrifice and die on a cross, pouring out his blood for you and me and not only dying, but then three days later, rising from the dead, showing that he truly was God. And then the scriptures tell us that all who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved from their sin. But not only will you be saved, but you will be sealed. You see, the moment that, that you receive Jesus, he saves you from your sin. But then like that protectant sealant covering, he covers you and seals you and restores the cracks and makes it how it should have been in the first place. It's unbelievable. It's the most powerful sealant that will never decay and that will never fade. And that is the power of Jesus. Have you allowed the power of Jesus to pour over your life to restore you back to God? If you haven't, then I wanna give you that opportunity right now. And so wherever you're listening, wherever you're watching, maybe you just caught that. Maybe you've just realized that for the first time that you know what? I'm separated from God because of my sin. I, I, I know that I've been led away by the world and I feel the separation, but I don't wanna feel the separation. I, wanna, I want his sealant to cover me. I wanna receive Jesus. I want him to save me and seal me. If that's you, not by your works, but by your faith that you believe that Jesus is God, you can just repeat this prayer and the quietness of wherever you're at, just say this, just say, Father, save me. Say that. Father, save me. Say, Father, seal me with your love. Seal me. Restore me back to you. And then say, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for sending your son. Thank you for dying for me. Thank you for rising again for me. I need you. I receive you. And I make you the king of kings of my life. As we continue to pray, my friend, if you truly meant that, the scriptures are so clear that you will no longer perish, but you will have everlasting life. Your life starts now, you're saved and you're sealed and no one can rob that 
from you. No one can take that from you. Father, thank you so much for these finishing touches of this book to inspire us when it comes to our culture and how we can be used in our lives. And we, we, we thank you for the reminder of, of the gospel protecting our communication. Help us to see where we're vulnerable. Father, thank you for just that we can find our true contentment in you, not in money, but in you. And, and Father, thank you for the reminder of the courage that we can have only in you. And so God, we have nothing to fear. We love you and we pray this in the power of your son's name, Jesus. Amen. Well, listen, if you made a faith decision to be saved and sealed by Jesus today, then we want to celebrate with you. And so we want to encourage you, tell someone. I don't know where you're watching. Maybe you're close by, maybe you're far away. Let someone know. If you're not a part of a local church, get a part of a local church, or please share with us as a family of churches. We want to know how God has moved in your life to celebrate with you and then answer any questions that you may have. So you can text the number right there on the screen. Can't wait to see you next week.